Welcome to Inspiration and Adaptation. My name is uh, Asia Freeman, and I'm the Artistic Director of Bunnell Street Art Center. For about 18 weeks, we have presented dialogues to illuminate current issues and empower audiences across Alaska and beyond with creative strategies for maneuvering challenging times. Today is the second in a five-week series of conversations about Indigenous land acknowledgement. And um, I want to say that I'm a lifelong visitor on this land called Tuga by the Denaina, meaning shore or at the water. Benel occupies a Western-style building which was formerly a trading post erected by settlers on Ketchumac Bay in the 1930s. As such, it was a critical tool in the strategy of colonization for this region, supplying settlers with food and supplies for westward expansion, homesteading, and land claims. Today, with support from National Performance Network's Community Fund and the Social Justice Fund of Alaska Community Foundation, our many members, our devoted board, we strive to transform this space and its role in community centering Indigenous artists and activists and advancing awareness, participation, and visible acknowledgement of Indigenous lands. These activities attest to ongoing, sustainable Indigenous lifeways since time immemorial, which continue to steward this place. Our conversation today is titled, Where We Begin, Together, Learning About Land Acknowledgement with Emily Johnson and Amber Webb. Amber is Yupik and Unagan from Aleknagek, Alaska. She received a Rasmussen Individual Artist Award and a Project Award. She explores pictorial Yupik storytelling to tell contemporary stories of oppression and resilience. Emily Johnson is an artist who makes body-based work. A Bessie Award-winning choreographer and a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow in Choreography. She is based in New York. Raised in Soldatna, she is of Yupik descent. So I'd like to set the stage for this dialogue together and ask Amber, as a contemporary artist based in rural Alaska, could you begin by pronouncing the names of the place where you live and providing all of us a picture of the Alaska context and themes that have shaped you? I'm interested in how you might address the ongoing impacts of colonization the trauma triggered by the current pandemic and ongoing violence and disappearance of indigenous women. From your perspe perspective, help us understand why this makes acts of land acknowledgement so critically important, Amber. Thank you. So uh, this is a very interesting um, uh, subject to be speaking about right now. Um, the original name of the place where I'm from is Chilion, which means churning water in Yupik. And it's where the Wood River and the Nushigak River meet in Bristol Bay. Um, so it's where um, the fresh water meets the salt water. And um, I live currently in Aleknigik, which has its original place name still. Uh, and Chilreong is now called Dillingham. Well, what became Dillingham was uh, the area called Kanakanak, um, the area called Chilreong, and then uh, various other 
locations that kind of all mesh together and they named it Dillingham after a senator from Iowa, I think, at some point. But so my goal is to eventually have the name of Dillingham changed back to Chilvium because that's the name of the place. So what I've been trying to do is uh, begin introducing myself as Amber Webb from Chilvium, Alaska, but a lot of people don't know what I'm talking about. So then it like, it kind of creates a space to open a conversation about it, which is good. But sometimes I just say I'm from Dillingham because uh, maybe for the sake of expediency, <laughs> which I you know, have mixed feelings about. But the other thing I, I'm, we're working on here right now, there's a creek called Squaw Creek here. Um, and the reason they call it Squaw Creek is that there were these seven sisters who were orphaned and they came down from somewhere up toward the Kuskokwim and they came and floated their kayaks up this up this river. It's a little creek actually, more so than a river. And they um, all kind of settled around this creek and they all married white men and they all have the dominant last names of of this community, all of the big groups of, of family that are still here, most of them descend from these seven sisters. So right now I'm in the process of working on changing the name from the derogatory slur Squaw Creek to Allah Creek or uh, Makaluk Creek, which is grandmother or some other word that references that story in a more respectful way. But one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that these women knew that in order to survive at that time, they were going to have to marry white men and that their children were going to do better in the world if they were, if they became white. So this is, this is kind of the reality that has shaped my entire community. Um, and up until I was even in my early 20s, that was still kind of the accepted reality for a lot of people that you can see that everyone who had family who married white did better. They just generally did better. They had more money, they were more sort of conventionally uh, successful and that what right now a lot of us are trying to do is learn all the traditions that they didn't teach us because they wanted us to succeed in life and forgiving them for making that decision for their own survival and for our survival, even if it cost us a lot. So it's an interesting kind of undertaking to change that name. And I think spiritually there's um, a lot of community work to be done because there are people in the community who just, send from those women who are like, I don't want to change the name. That's our history, you know, and, and like opening up those conversations with those people too. So, um, and then I could probably go on, but I feel like that's kind of um, my most recent experience with land acknowledgement is because at this point, the name of that Creek, whatever it was in Yupik, that name is gone. Nobody knows what that name was now. So how do we take a name for that creek that references our Yupik heritage, but then 
in 40 years, everyone will know that creek as whatever name we choose and it won't have the um, sort of the derogatory connotation like taking the resiliency instead of hanging on to the colonization take our resiliency out of those experiences and move forward with that instead so yeah wow beautiful that's so exciting we've talked about so many different things at different times but i but i hadn't heard that effort and it's just fantastic thank you emily um you're a forerunner of land acknowledgement from Tugek to Lenapahoking as a dancer, a choreographer, a storyteller, and an artist, you've expanded into an activist in this movement. Explain why land acknowledgement is so important to your practice. Um, hi, everyone. Um, Amber, I, I think this will be way, by way of answering the question, Asia. Amber, I, um, I so appreciate all of your work and and this work too of rematriating name and it makes just as you were as you were finishing by wrapping up by saying that the original place name of that river is is gone is lost like that's such a profound loss of knowledge because our place names are knowledge the place name where you are from churning waters that means there, there's so much information um, like necessary information in in place name and um, and you know I have some um, colleagues sisters in uh, Minnesota Mokoche uh, Carly and Kate Bean uh, they're Dakota and they've been working on on place name change there that's having a lot of effect they've been at it for years um, with the Bere Makaska uh, renaming um, the, the lake right in what is called Minneapolis. And just watching the, the depth of community work in their work and then the challenge that they face by settlers still. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a profound reclaiming and, and that it's led by women. <laughs> and you know, it, it's, it is about that rematriative process, which is what land acknowledgement is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here in, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the Napeho King, and the focus that I understand here is about um, the forced removal of Lenape people and how land acknowledgements and knowing place is about creating pathways for Lenape people who want to return home to be able to do so. And so, so land acknowledgement becomes so much more right away is so much more than a, than spoken word and and it, it is it is spoken it is embodied it is visual it is processed but it's also civic and it's also engagement with with relation with place in such a deep relational way that you're engaging with ancestors of that place both past ancestors and the ancestors who are coming in the future via the people who are are alive right now um, and so that relationality via, via place name um, is, is just so important. And that's, that's where I've come to understand land acknowledgement. And, you know, and it, that I think in relation to my body-based work, like to me, it's like, to me, they've always been intertwined, though I think I've, I've learned more about the technique of land acknowledgement, just like I've learned more about the technique of making performance as I've, you know, as I've been doing it for a few decades. Um, 
but to me that dance is everything that it's this conversation across space and time that it's my you know body process of saying words my gestures the language it's the tree outside it's the breeze from the fan it's the migratory birds it's the fish that are being caught now in Alaska and other like you know that dance is all of this um, to me dance is also so relational and about knowing and understanding where you are where the dance is occurring where where your body is being embodied in relationship to place so to me to me knowing place comes in so many forms in embodied forms um, through dance and through acknowledgement as well mm -hmm. thank you I, amber i wanted to give you a chance to respond to that and um because I, I neglected to do that with our transitions here. But this is such an important dialogue between leaders, you know, which is a privilege just to hold the space for that. Uh, well, Oyana, for that, um, I, as I'm listening to Emily speak about land acknowledgement, you know, a part of, a part of that land acknowledgement is uh, a form of spiritual reparation for so many things. And I, you know, I, I as a young person, I grew up um, Yupik dancing, Yurak, and I was never a great talent <laughs> in Yurak. That's not my medium as much, but I love it. Um, and I see that in, like, I, I'm like learning more and more as I've grown how all of those movements came directly from the land and from place and all all of the language and all of the activity comes from place. But the other thing that is really sometimes not always considered is that now, like our old Yupik place names always either had a reference to um, uh, nature or a reference to something that happened there. So if like there were areas where they would reference battles in different ways, talking about like, like there's a one story where there was a river and one of the men in a kayak during war times was um, like blew his snot into the water. <laughs> his phlegm and they call it snot creek because that phlegm traveled down the creek and there were warriors from the other side behind him and they saw his snot and they knew he was up there they knew those people were there and then they went and there was a battle and so there's these little ways that we reference happenings that just the single word carries the story and like when you're talking about um how indigenous history has been carried through the names that people who experienced great hardship, how they named those places and then carried that history on to their ancestors, like the Trail of Tears, or there was a place in Kodiak, the name was um, called, it was called the place where it was, I think the word was sticking your hands in ice cold water because that was the spot where 
the Alutic people in Kodiak um, lost the battle with the Russians that ultimately ended up with the Russians settling there. The place where the place where we go numb is what that would be in English. But in in Alutic, in in Sukhpiak, in the Sukhpiak language, it was putting your hands in cold water because that's all that you would have to say. That was where that loss happened. So the place names that we carry forward now, no matter what those places were called before, they carry our history now. Um, and and I think a lot of the work for me lately, um, I do a lot of work with um, uh, MMIWG and, and Two-Spirited people as well. And I am seeing, I can trace those stories histor like back several generations. I was having a conversation with um, Anita Lucchese who developed the database. And she was telling me the story of her great grandmother and it was almost the same as mine where we both recognized that both of our great grandmothers had been trafficked. And that's not how our families would describe them now, but that's the reality. And that's the reality for very many people who are alive now. So when we talk about land acknowledgement, it takes us so deep into the healing of our people. And I think when, when we're calling up all of those names, just like they're doing in Minnesota, it, it, you never know what kind of reaction you're going to get because it calls up so much history for individual families. And I think when you live in a place where people carry those stories forward within their own families and everybody knows each other's family story, you like it requires a lot of delicacy and like the utmost respect. How you speak about those things matters. And so I, I really appreciate uh, everything you said, Emily, and I, I see that in my own work, although uh, my work isn't so much in the form of movement, but, <laughs> but I, I, they're, they're related, you know, it's all related. So anyway, I'm not sure if that was a very organized response, but. And there's so much movement in your work, like all of the, I see your rock in your work so, so deeply. Um, and just how the stories and the, the knowledge comes through from from what you draw and, and it's yeah it's incredible yeah Emily you've um witnessed participated in led many land acknowledgments and I wonder if you could share with us through images and story some of the um, experiences what you've learned from land acknowledgement and how it's moving you forward yeah um, I can, um, yeah, let me share my screen here. And I'll try to do this in just sort of like a sharing the images and, and talking kind of way, because it can, you know, it's, it's part of a presentation that I, that I do when I'm, when I'm teaching workshops or, or leading folks who, you know, people who are, um, who are settlers who are stepping into a process of land acknowledgement sometimes step into it without even without without having any idea what it is and so in a way in a way i always like to think both about um, technical aspects but also about like the, the best possible scenarios which is where we began you know where our place names are rematriated where the indigenous nations of 
the land that is currently called the U.S. are, are the ones governing the land that is currently called the U.S. And that and, and land back, you know, that the land itself is repatriated um, back to us. That is that is the place in which we are going. That is the place that I'm that I try to um, be in and to conjure. And so, yeah. So I guess I just offer that as a as a start. And um, let's see if this works. You kind of see my um, my grandma's wallet here. Um, yeah. Okay, and then I just need to know. Okay, great. So this I just love to start by sharing this. This is a wallet that my grandma made, uh, my grandma Hannah, uh, and uh, it's of caribou hide and beads. And she won a ribbon for it at the state fair. And it's the wallet that I carry with me all the time. And I recently wrote a, an essay and story about it because I've lost this wallet twice. Um, once it fell out of my pocket when I lived in Minnesota Mokoche, and, uh, and it was found by somebody and who was experiencing homelessness, and they wanted to give it back to me, um, but they wanted to meet me in person. And so the, the shelter where that person stayed called me and said that he was there and wanted to meet me, and I was like, great. Um, you know, I'll come over and they're like, oh, well, he's not here. I said, okay, when is he there? And, you know, of course you never know. Like it's, um, and so I would just stop by that, that shelter every once in a while to see if we could meet, see if I could meet him, to see if I could um, return the, or have the wallet returned. And I'd leave little gifts and things and our timing just never worked out or maybe I gave up too soon or something and we never met. Um, but years later, I received this wallet in the mail um from him or from the shelter i don't know and uh everything that was in it was still inside of it and so this this wallet carries that story now and the story of its return and i'm sad that i've never met this person but like i i, I think about this person a lot because it's so much a part of this of this wallet and this object that i carry with me all the time and the second time that I lost it, I was in a rehearsal process um, for the Thank You Bar, actually, in um, Duwamish land. And I was dancing with my eyes closed, as I often do, <laughs> and I was improvising, and there was a video camera on, and there was a mirror behind me, and there were two musicians I was working with, and I was dancing with my eyes closed, and somebody came in while I was dancing and took, like, took my took my purse and the wallet was inside of it. Um, and when I realized my purse was gone, I could look in back at the video and see this person come in and take my purse away. And I was very upset and I figured, well, I've lost the wallet once, that, that's, that's it. But I, I didn't assume that the wallet would come back to me again. But this time, a few weeks later, the wallet came back in the mail again. Um, and this time it was from the Duwamish post office or Seattle post office with a note that said, this time everything in it was gone except my ID. And the note said that um, people often do this, like they'll, they'll take something and then take what they need or want out of it and then put the, the objects or the items they don't need or want into the post office boxes. And the, it's the Seattle um, post office's uh, policy to return what is not theirs. Which I, like, I so appreciate that. I appreciate that so much because this, beautiful belonging hand stitched by my grandma was returned to me because the Seattle post office has this policy to return what is not theirs. And 
that is a beautiful way to think of land acknowledgement, right? And this, as a choreographer, I make notes all the times and all the time. These are notes from a workshop um, on a on constellatory on a constellatory decolonial process. And these words here are decolonial, radical, not radial, and simple. And to me, these words are so intertwined, right? Like the most radical acts often come from the most simple concepts, like return what is not yours. <laughs> and of course, there are many layers of complexity involved in the very simple acts, um, you know, of creating an artwork or returning what is not yours. But, but there's a way in which um, the interweavings between these words and the processes around these words are very related. And I like to think of the radical all the time, radical decolonial love, like my friend Karen Reckley writes about. Um, and this thought that some people think that it's radical to think that land could be returned, but it, it's not. It's actually very simple, return what is yours. In terms of land acknowledgements themselves, and like I said, that's what we're after, right? In terms of land acknowledgements themselves, there are some beautiful examples. These are just some of my favorites. Um, those of you who are not in Alaska um, might not have seen this. This is the biggest land acknowledgement I've ever seen. This is the Nina Ethnina. This is on the outside of the Anchorage Museum. It's right on a busy street. It's just like there and it's present and I think it's really gorgeous. And it's matched. I know that there are many internal workings within the museum that I don't know and I, I won't necessarily go into. I've done a little bit of work within the museum that those experiences have always been good. Um, uh, Chief Aaron Liggett is one of the curators there. Melissa Chaganoff used to work there and I know that there's some internal processes that are, if not on pace with how big this land acknowledgement is, at least are working. And I guess I just mentioned that because it's very true that land acknowledgements just as like, if you, if you take away everything that Amber and I have been talking about, land acknowledgement can actually become very dangerous. Like it can become something that a person or an organization or an institution uses to kind of show that they're doing something right when they're not. Or they can use it to say, okay, there, we've done the work. Like when actually you actually have to, uh, you know, uh, decolonize all of the systems within your organization. One organization that's really doing that well is Abrams Art Center here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And um, they were one of the first um, uh, theaters and institutions here in uh, Lenape Hoking to start land acknowledgement. And uh, we created this one along with representatives from the Lenape Center a few years ago. And the, the process was really good. The process itself was generous. It took a long time and it took a lot of back and forth and it took a lot of thinking about relationality and it took a lot of thinking about how Abrams, as they were stepping into writing this with us, how they could also take immediate actions, build relationships with local indigenous folks, um, build you know, processes where people could rehearse there and you know, like just beginning process of that relationality. And, I just, I like this one so much because the process was so good that Abrams was, was gifted um, these words in language to be part of the acknowledgement. Um, and my pronunciation might be a little bit off for sure, but what I've learned is that it's Nuhe Linda Muhano Elapeoku Lenapeho King, Gula Shihimo Enta Apeoku. So it's, we're glad you people came here to Lenapeho King live well while you are here. And Abrams is in the process of revamping 
their land acknowledgement, which is something I always talk about it as embodied land acknowledgement and that it's living. And land acknowledgements are a living process and so the words should shift as your relationships shift, as your knowledge shifts, as things around you shift, as sovereignty is gained, the, the acknowledgement must change um, with, with those realities. And so we're reworking it with um, Lenape uh, folks, Joe and River Whittle. Um, and Abrams is working on, like I mentioned at the beginning, paths for, as an art center, how can they create pathways for Lenape artists who want to do work in their homeland and who may have never been to their homeland? How can they create pathways for those, those artists to be here? And then from there, like Mia Little and I talk about that, they're a, a young activist and artist and their first trip here, now they have so many relationships here and they're starting to build process within their homeland, even though they don't live in their homeland, but they needed that trip here to start to build those relationships. And so all of those pathways that, that we help build help foster, again, that indigenous relationality and those conciliatory uh, relationships. Um, and then this is just another example in um, Minnesota Makoche, the Melb Museum, uh, worked on this acknowledgement with Dakota leaders. And they, I just use this one as an example because they make reparation a part of their land acknowledgement, maybe in a small way, but it's a step. So they waive admission for Dakota and all indigenous peoples. And that's stated in their land acknowledgement. So to me, a, an institution's land acknowledgement needs to talk about action, it needs to say, okay, here's what we are committed to doing. And then again, as a living process, that can change, that can be added to, that can grow and that can deepen. And I think if your organization is not ready to commit to any action, I think it's okay to say that, but in a process of figuring out what those actions need to be, you know? Um, but as Amber and I have been talking about, um, land acknowledgement and embodying relationality and embodying land acknowledgement can be more than words. This is a project. Um, that myself and Karen McAuley, who I mentioned before, she's a Cree futurist um, living in Toronto. We host these um, monthly fires at Abrams Art Center. And the project itself is called Conciliatory Mappings in Light and Dark Matter. And they're indigenous held spaces where the fire is centered and where we try to learn from the fire. Um, and I'll just put this definition of conciliatory here and I'm just gonna read something that Karen and I wrote about the fires because it talks about land acknowledgement in, in a really different way. Um, so we wrote this essay about the fires and we said, fires capacities as a relative or kin specifically situated on Lenape homelands creates a hub space for indigenous sociality through forms of intimacy. As the fire is cared for, the fire in turn creates space and calls people in. The fire sound and gestures and movement and warmth become the technologies for kin in the making. Neighbor meeting neighbor, child meeting fire, settler meeting round dance, an indigenously defined space. The space itself, filled at times with drum or song or poem or story, and silence becomes an in-between space full of care, welcome, pause, and eclipse. This is otherworlding. This is futurity building. These gatherings that center fire as a technology extend territorial acknowledgements by moving people into relation, into forms of indigenous sociality, 
necessitating the accompanying responsibilities embedded within these formations. We consider a more sustaining and challenging land activation rather than simple reproductions of theoretical frameworks that accommodate activists within an already leftist politic. Consequently, our provocations deeply engage land acknowledgments as an embodiment practice. We ask, can embodied forms of dance making and gathering bring us out of this trap of a superficial land acknowledgement and into a space of landing with each other, into a space where equity and balance are possible? And my friends, I'll just show a few more photos of the fire just to add to that last bit that we wrote about um, my friends um, and scholars, Dylan Robinson, he's a Stolo scholar based in Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish um, lands and Camille Usher, a Coast Salish artist. And Karen and I have been talking about gatherings and meeting about gatherings and also when Dylan and Karen and uh, Camille and I had a residency together, um, we started to talk about acknowledgement and, and started to question if acknowledgement is the right word anymore. Like, like as the work gets deeper, you know, as Amber is starting to rematriate names, maybe there, maybe there's a different, maybe, maybe we start to call this thing that we've started to know as land acknowledgement something different. And maybe that can start to activate different forms as well. This is a garden, which this is one of my favorite land acknowledgements ever. This is a garden um, planted with Shashap Sehing uh, black flint corn, uh, corn from here in the Napeho King. Um, there's a little written land acknowledgement there in the center, but it's corn. It's in its second generation of growing right now. It's a three sisters garden. Um, and I think that that garden and that statement of the plants growing, that is rematriative process. And actually Mia Little, who I talked about earlier, I introduced her to the corn when she was, when they, sorry, they were here on their first trip uh, last year and they got to harvest some of this black plant corn. Um, so those are just some examples and I'm just going to skip ahead to this photo of this tree. This is my favorite tree in the Napeho King. This was in the fall. But when we speak of civic engagement, like the city is about to destroy the park that this tree is in. So the city of New York, the occupying city of New York is going to cut down a thousand trees and 47 acres of this park. It's, um, it's a quite controversial plan, obviously. And I just keep thinking, and we're fighting it, and we're having a conciliatory fire to honor the trees next week. But I just keep thinking, like, that's not your land to mess with, is what I think of, you know? And, and I think, I think of, I just, I think of how relationship with land needs to be so completely separate from these systems that we've, that colonialism has created and that we have lived under for hundreds of years, those systems that we speak of needing to be dismantled need to be dismantled right now. Like, the, you know, the killing 1,000 trees in the midst of a climate crisis, in the midst of a pandemic, this is the only park that this mostly, um, lower income, this neighborhood that is mostly made of black and indigenous and other people of color, it is the only place. Like, it, it's so irresponsible and so unindigenous <laughs> to 
to, to make an act against the land like this, that I just like, I just feel like land acknowledgement is part of shifting that kind of, um, that kind of uh, irresponsible behavior as well. And it's more than irresponsible, but that's just the best word that's coming to mind right now. Um, yeah, those are some, th some thoughts. <laughs> Wow. Why, Emily, why are the trees being cut down? Uh, so the, you know, Manhattan is coastal, obviously, uh -huh. uh, and the Lower East Side does need some flood protection. Um, hurricane Sandy was a massive hurricane that happened about six years ago. And in those six years, um, the city and about 20 neighborhood organizations came up with a plan to provide flood protection for the Lower East Side and, and, uh, and Chinatown, the, the neighborhood that I live in is the Lower East Side, but they're connected. Um, and so they came up with a plan that was about resiliency and about flood protection and about community engagement, which of course that's what resiliency really is. Um, but in the fall of this last year, the city very suddenly changed the plan which is the thing that we're fighting and there's a lawsuit against that action. Um, and so now the city's plan without any community involvement is to destroy the park, cut down the trees, add six feet of dirt and rebuild the park. So that process will take, they say five years, it will probably take longer, but it destroys the park in the interim. The other plan did not destroy the park. Um, yeah, so. I mean, there's there's no there's there's no um, responsible reason why they're cutting down the trees or why this is the plan that they're going with. Um, there are other reasons, like their plan doesn't the city's plan doesn't um, stop the flow of traffic on the FDR as much as the other plan did. So in some ways, the city is putting forth a plan for flood mitigation that preserves flow of traffic beyond saving 1,000 trees, you know? Um, to me, that's a pretty ill, Ill thought through plan. Mm. And you've been working on this project for a while, like tracing the, the change in course for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's neighborhood, a neighborhood organization that's been very active in, in fighting the, the city on this plan. Um, next week, we'll have a, a an, actually an in-person gathering at the amphitheater at Abrams Art Center. We won't have a central fire, but people will have candles. Some amazing artists and activists, Joseph Pierce, uh, Demian Dinayaji, Jasmine Sanchez, um, Joe Whittle, Tatiana Benali, one other I'm forgetting, um, are going to share words. In this, like, it's a, it's a local issue, but it's a global, it's a global issue. It's a global issue of ecocide against land that continuously and consistently harms Black and Indigenous people um, at, at the hands of you know the hands of colonial governments. Um, purposely do this specifically in coastal places, as we know in Alaska as well, um, but all over the world. And so, so these artists and activists who will share on Thursday are bringing that into this conversation as well. And then we will process. Um, and spend time with the trees while they're still with us and really to extend our honor and our gratitude to the trees because they are sentient beings who, 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 who deserve um, honor and gratitude. And so we'll try to build those relationships while we have time with them.
And, and I guess that's a form of land acknowledgement too. I hadn't thought of that um, quite in that context, but um, in guiding whoever, whomever comes on next Thursday into that process, um, really for the trees. Like, let's remove the, you know, humans, we center ourselves all the time as, because we do, but, but maybe if, if we can, we can try to shift that and, and really center our relationships, center the trees in this case, um, maybe that would be a better thing to do. For a mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of, um, of a short film, uh, a very interesting experimental film in the collection at the Walker Art Center, which um, was conceived by Theaster Gates in response to um, a decision within the city of um, Minneapolis to cut down a bunch of trees. And he created a uh, performance which involved the gradual cutting down of that tree with like this sustained, beautiful um, live performance, a, a piece of music on, by a horn player. So these two black men were kind of bearing witness and creating a ritual um, of acknowledgement around land and displacement at the same time. So there's inter an interesting, um, I'm sure in many other connected movements, like what you're speaking of today. Oh, and what what Amber works with so much on highlighting the um, the genocide of indigenous women and girls and trans and two spirit people that is exactly related to extractive industries, which are which are exactly industries that that do not regard the land in in any sort of care form, and so that has direct impact on 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 the lives. On the, and now the missing and the murdered lives of indigenous women. And, and it's, it's absolutely connected to land. And so as we're speaking of land acknowledgement, it's, it is, as Amber said, it, deep, it goes very, very quickly, very deeply into exactly our, 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 um, our very centers. Yeah. Amber, I wanted to invite you to, you know, reflect and comment on, on these thoughts that Emily's sharing now and, and her earlier presentation. Well, what a beautiful presentation. Um, having small sort of small pieces of things that my uh, great grandmother made and um, like how knowing how prized those are, I was just so happy to see that you you were able to get your uh, get it back. You know that that's beautiful. But you know, I'm thinking of what you said about how the word for land acknowledgement um, could change over time and really like what you're talking about, like land acknowledgement is a way of life. It's, it's our way of life. And so everything about land acknowledgement is about reclaiming the way that we have traditionally lived and been in space with like how how we've existed in in our environment and that we're a part of that environment and that we're not um it's not possible to separate us from that because everything about all of our cultures is connective and is directly like grown around the places where we existed and exist still you know and and i think that that's a really powerful declaration to make as a native person that like I recognize that I have a right 
to my culture and my culture means that I practice um, acknowledging land and the and animals and all of the things that feed me and that's um, that I think that's like really just getting to the root of what it's about but the other thing that it it, it made me think of is um, a lot of the sort of healing that goes into that work when you're dealing with lateral oppression and internalized oppression where I feel like a lot of what happened during ANGSA, which this gets political very quickly, but I, I, it's just what came to me is that, so we have these groups, we were separated into all these groups and we became incorporated and it became in some ways a kind of a competition, like, like further colonizing how we exist with each other. And, um, so many people here were sent away from their land and their identity was essentially uh, annihilated in so many ways. And so many of us have been trying to reclaim what our parents or our grandparents or their parents lost in boarding schools. Um, and there's like a weight to that, even just saying that out loud, that's just it's profoundly painful to even acknowledge it for so many people. So you're also asking people to um, acknowledge their own hurt and that can be really challenging. But I'm like, I'm what I'm really thinking about as a result of this conversation is how do we demand of our corporations that they continue to do that work decolonizing and indigenizing how they function. Like, they've been put in this place to be the go between between us and and like money right us and capitalism and really we're allowed to be who we are and we can we can re we can revamp that we can completely create an organization that does something for us that is of us and not of this sort of external force so it's really like just when I'm hearing Emily talk, I'm realizing that that's completely possible and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm just, I can see that happening in, in my lifetime and like the next couple generations of people that are growing up knowing these terms, like just watching those little girls harvesting that corn and all of the meaning and the name three sisters, you know, the corn and squash and beans and all of that knowledge. That's it's right there, you know, and all of the people here, I know, that are like just graduating from high school and they're talking about colonization and they're talking about these big concepts. It's like, I, you know, every day I'm waking up and I'm asking myself, how am I there for these, these just beautiful bright lights, these young people that are, are the fire, they're catching, everything's catching, you know, and it's so, you know, when I, when I start feeling really, um, heartbroken for some of the other things that we you know that we fight I just have to take a step back and be like but wait there's all this beauty in in all this work we've been doing and that's not going to go away you know so anyway those are that's kind of just my thoughts watching your presentation wow so Emily um you've been more recently deeply engaged in um, 
creating social and economic equity for artists. And I want to talk a little bit more about how um, the work of, um, you know, creating new futures is rooted in land acknowledgement. Could you explore with us a little bit more about this work that you're doing, this movement that you're sparking? I think, um, well, coming to what Amber was just saying, these like, well, first I really appreciate what you just said, Amber, because last night I was watching, um, Who's that? John Oliver, John Oliver. And it was like a bit on rent subsidies and like just how messed up things are right now. And it just like I am a I think I think Amber and I share this like like there's like have like see so much possibility and like see the future in in like like see it and know that that future, that better future is possible. Like I am I'm just right there and I'm right there all the time. But then some like hopeful, but hopeful and, and visioning and working toward, but then like personally, I feel like that kind of like hope and drive and like knowledge that it, of that, of the beauty <laughs> that is coming <laughs> to me personally can sometimes be met with like really, really, a deep darkness and and some and last night I was getting to that point just in like seeing the reification of systems that are so wrong and seeing in this moment of institutions for example reopening when they haven't done the work that they need to do on any on any kind of anti-racist they haven't done their work um, to, they haven't. They haven't. They they don't deserve to open, right? Like, and and so there's a way in which I kind of like, I was getting really down last night, um, which led into this morning. But now I'm shifting through this conversation, so I'm very <laughs> grateful, grateful for that. And um, and creating new futures is a is a document. It's a process. It was born of this time of coronavirus where artists were receiving uh, just 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 flat out massive cancellations of all of our work and processes and timelines and not to mention fees. Um, and a group of artists came together via social media. There are 10 of us who got together and in this very urgent time of needing to say that this is wrong as well as all of the systems in the performing arts field that, that are really centered in mostly like white heteropatriarchal viewpoints <laughs> are also wrong. Um, and, and so we wrote this over 200 page document together um, that really, that really um, excavated as one of the working group members, Karen Sherman says, really excavated a lot of just the realities, the problematic realities that exist within the performing arts field. And of course that mirrors the problematic realities that exist in pretty much every system in what is called the United States. And um, but we did it in this hopeful way <laughs> where we're like, right, here are the problems, but we know that there are, are alternatives and here are some thoughts about that. And uh, that document has really, um, uh, it, it, it did a lot to call attention to the inequities and unethical behavior um, in the performing arts world where, um, where arts workers of all kinds um, 
aren't working in any kind of fair labor uh, processes, aren't receiving compensation for work on a, any kind of equitable scale, um, are doing the labor of, of, of cultural work, but are not, um, not recognized or compensated um, in correct ways. Um, and that creating new futures is, is continuing now uh, with a group of people who are moving it into phase two. And we hope it's an ongoing uh, and, and deeply engaged process that pulls in uh, conversations with leaders at every institution and at every layer of performing arts, because we need to, as I just keep really seeing, I, I, I really wish and I really, I actually really hope for some of the institutions to, to not come back. Um, and I know that that can seem really, really harsh and stark, but, but I, I hope and what I want is for individuals, institutions, organizations to, in this moment, recognize the behavior that they've been engaged in that is uh, racist and colonial uh, and against black liberation and against indigenous sovereignty uh, and, and work to change those structures. And just like land acknowledgement, that's a personal process and that's an organizational process, but it must be engaged with and it must be like, have to start that work. And if your organization or your institution, the place that employs you is not doing that work, I don't think that that institution is a place that that needs to stay in existence. Um, every organization can start with the first step, of course, but like start start those steps. Like we're not out here protesting for anything other than radical change, for transformation, for liberation, and for sovereignty. And it takes it takes every especially it takes our cultural institutions to lead that way. You know, if you're not leading in that path, what are you, what are you leading? You know? yeah. Thank you. And um, what are you thinking, Amber, if you would like to respond? I certainly. Mm. I think you, I'm going to unmute you. Amber, I can't hear you. Sorry about that. Thank you. All right. <laughs> I thought I had unmuted, but I had not. Um, I'm just thinking 100% yes to, to everything that Emily just said. I mean, so much of the work, it's like, it's such an interesting uh, kind of work to be doing because, you know, every day I'm doing that work inside myself and then trying to find ways to call people up instead of just calling people out, like, like being connective instead of destructive. Like we can hold people accountable in our own indigenous ways that we always have had and always have used. And I, I think that um, it's conversations like these that really do, when I start to feel pretty hopeless about what's happening, that really do remind me that there are millions of people working toward the same things that we're working toward and that energy that collective energy is so much more powerful than any kind of destructive energy and all of these things we've been fighting all of these things we've been working toward have been happening for 
a really long time. I mean, just in the MMIW movement, you know, we're looking at 40 years of, of even longer than that of women. And it's all, it's always been indigenous women fighting for these things. Um, and, and we're, we're carrying on their work. So when we no longer exist, there will be people carrying on our work. It's like, because ener energy and motion are cumulative and they have their own force. So I, I just, I just think 100% yes, you know, we, it, you, you know, there, there are going to be setbacks, but I feel like right now in this time, there's an entire world of people realizing how much power they have collectively and that that's, you can't take that back. You know, you, you, you just can't, you can't take that away. Once people realize how powerful they are, then they will continue to believe in their own power. So, yeah. So thank you for your words, Emily. And I, I agree with you 100%. It's been such a pleasure to, to speak with you two today and to recognize the profound value of the connection that you maintain as Zupic women on um, far, far shores and disparate geographies but that is the nature of alaska and by by speaking and and gathering and learning um we're moving forward and i feel um very privileged to be a part of that motion in this in this conversation weekly i want to thank all of our listeners too um, for joining us and ask if anybody has questions of our speakers today Um, I'm so sorry. I actually have another meeting back to back with this one. So I have to, but if, if there are any questions, uh, email me, I'll answer or, or call me. It's, <laughs> I, I'm accessible most of the time. So, but thank you so much. Thank you, Amber. Take care. We'll Amber. talk soon. Thank you, Amber. I just like to, uh, thank everybody, um, for joining us and, um, to remind you to tune in again next week, we will be um, having a conversation called um, How Can We Move Forward? Framing Civic Partnerships on Land Acknowledgement with Arjent Kvaznikov from Niknalchik, the original um, pronunciation of the village called Ninilchik. Uh, he's a member of the, the Niknalchik Village Tribe. And that conversation will be together with several civic partners from Homer, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, representative Marion Applin, City of Homer, um, Councilwoman Donna Adderhold, and several people from Parks and Rec about um, erecting a permanent land acknowledgement for um, to get at the shore where we live. Amazing. Thank you all so much. Let's talk soon. <laughs>